So that's a good question, right? What's more important to have on a resume, education or experience? And judging by the sound of the room, you've got some opinions on this matter. I don't know about you, but writing a resume is right up there with the worst experiences of my life. Just wrestling with this whole project of trying to present yourself in a way that you look like you know something about anything without bragging about it. It's such a challenge. Writing a resume is, is an awful and harrowing experience. I, I bet some of you have had that same experience. But as difficult as it is to write a resume, building a resume is even harder, isn't it? Especially if you've got a lot of one education or experience, but not the other. So have you run into this situation where all you've got is education and you can't get a job because you don't have experience and you go, how am I going to get the experience on my resume when all I've got is education? Or when you're busy getting experience, you've got a full-time or more job, it's really hard to go back and add more education, isn't it? But the truth is, for the really important jobs, both are vital. You've got to have the appropriate training and education, and you've got to have a measure of experience to qualify you for a big job. That's just sort of how it works with big jobs in life. There's a story in the Bible of a big job that God had, and it required someone with a big resume to take this job. And there's a story about how this resume got built. And this story is in a place called Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to go there this morning. If you've got a Bible or a device of some sort, you could grab a Bible out from the pew underneath you. We're going to read through the story of Exodus 2 and see how God worked to build a resume for a big job that he had to give. Now, while you're getting there, let me offer just a couple of words of context. First, this Made for This series Uh, where four sermons from the book of Exodus drawing out four themes under this title of things that we were made for. Uh, And if you've sort of caught on to this at all, the, the, the themes are work and worship and wisdom. And then there's this fourth one called wandering. And so as we get into this today, I just want to say this one's a little bit different. I'm not going to suggest in any way that we were made for wandering in the same way that we were made for, let's say, worship or wisdom. I'm also not talking about wandering in a sense of prone to wander, as the hymn says, uh, wandering away from God. I'm not going to suggest that we were made for wandering away from God, but what I am going to suggest is that there's an experience that's common to most, if not all of us, at some point in life where it feels like we are lost, feels like we've lost our way, feels like we're aimlessly wandering, not quite sure what's going on in our life. And I am going to suggest that God made us for these times and that he works in these times in ways that can only happen when we're in these places of wandering. So I wonder if that's you today. I wonder if you're walking in here today just not sure what's happening in your life and and whether God is even paying attention to you, if you're even on his radar, if there's even a God at all who has some kind of purpose for you. If that's you, this message is especially for you. So Exodus 1, uh, the chapter that precedes where we're going to be today, introduces us to this big job that needed to be done. So the nation of Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, were enslaved to the Egyptians. 
they were under harsh labor conditions, but despite uh, their, their harsh conditions in slavery, they were growing and multiplying as a people, so much so that they became a threat to the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh. And he said, wow, these, Egypt, these Israelites are getting so big and so mighty that if we don't do something about this, they're going to outnumber us, the Egyptians, and be able to take over. And so Pharaoh started to take some measures. So he increased their workload, began to oppress them more harshly, but that didn't work. The, the Israelites just continued to multiply and grow even stronger. And so he had a second idea, and he went to the midwives who were sort of helping give birth to the Hebrew babies. And he said, every Hebrew boy uh, that is delivered, you're to kill him right away. You can let the girls live, but, but you're going to kill the Hebrew boys. But the, the midwives sort of concocted this plan to counteract Pharaoh's edict, sort of outsmarted Pharaoh, uh, as, as unlikely as that may seem. So that second attack didn't work for Pharaoh. And then he had a third offensive, and we see it at the end of Exodus 1, and it sets us up for, happens, for what happens in Exodus 2. We see in Exodus 1.22, Pharaoh's third attempt to wipe out the Israelites, and it says this, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. There was a big job that needed to be done. Israel needed a deliverer. Israel needed a rescuer. And God was going to raise up that rescuer, but he needed to build a pretty big resume in order for that rescuer to be qualified. And we're going to see how that process plays out, beginning in Exodus 2, verse 1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So right away, this is the birth of Moses. He hasn't been named yet. But in the opening words, Moses' resume starts to look pretty good. The opening section of his resume begins with his parentage. He had a Levite father married to a Levite mother. The Levites were the priests of Israel. It was like being the pastor's kid in the Israelite community. It was sort of a Hebrew of Hebrews. It was almost like a purebred Hebrew It is sort of the point that's being made in the birth of Moses. And then we're told that he was a fine child. He was an exceptionally cute baby. He was such a cute baby that it's not just pointed out here, but two more times in the Bible. In Acts 7, where this story is retold, and in Hebrews 11, where there's a reflection on this story, both times go out of their way to point out that Moses was no ordinary child. This child was so cute that his mother couldn't imagine throwing him into the Nile and obeying Pharaoh's order. Now this raises a question for me right away, and I don't know if it raises it for you. What if he hadn't been so cute? There are actually commentators who reflect on this, and they talk about sort of the, the dysfunctional family that Moses was born into. Can you imagine this? And, and incidentally, this is Moses who is writing this autobiographical account. So he's remembering, yeah, mom, mom saw me. I was so cute. She just couldn't go through with those orders. So whatever the the case was going on there, Hebrews 11 actually commends Moses' parents and calls it an act of faith in hiding Moses, keeping him away from this edict that the Pharaoh had given. Whatever weaknesses they may have had, and there is no perfect family, they did show a measure of faith 
the Bible says, in this action. So imagine this scene. To hear this, this young man and woman were already experiencing the cruelty of their Egyptian taskmasters. Then the king issues this order that every Hebrew boy must be thrown into the Nile. And then the woman discovers that she's expecting a child. Can you imagine how they must have prayed that that child would be a girl? Can you imagine the lump in their gut when she did deliver and it was a boy? Surely they couldn't imagine obeying the king's order. But if they didn't, it would be a death sentence not only for their child, but for them and maybe even their family as well for disobeying the Pharaoh's edict. I imagine they delayed as long as possible, believing that somehow, some way, God would intervene. Maybe that was their measure of faith that becomes commended. Whatever the case, after three months, they had to face the inevitable, as unthinkable as that would have been. And we see it pick up in verse 3. It says, When she could hide the baby no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Can you imagine being Moses' sister, watching all of this unfold? We know from later in Exodus that her name was Miriam. And I wonder if her parents had sent her, or if they even knew she was there. Whatever the case, what, what was she expecting to see? So maybe this was a really shrewd tactic by Moses' parents, such that every day they would put Moses in this basket, which incidentally, the description of this basket is exactly the way the ark that Noah constructed is described coated with tar and pitch. So I wonder if this was a really shrewd, faith-filled move by Moses' mother to build this little ark for her baby and put it in the Nile so that if an Egyptian law enforcement came by, they could say, well, we've, we followed the Pharaoh's order. Technically, he's in the Nile. And then each night she would feed him and keep him alive. And maybe they could keep this up long enough that he would grow old enough where they could say, well, he was born before the king's edict. Who knows? We're not told. We can only speculate what this rhythm might have been. But I think it was probably more desperate than that. The text says Moses' sister watched to see what would happen. Reeds along a river are not safe. They may be able to hide a basket 
from an Egyptian police officer. But there are things called Nile crocodiles and other things that live among the reeds that make it a very unsafe place for a child in a basket to be. I wonder if maybe the best thing they could hope for was that the Nile River would carry their child out of Egypt, out of harm's way. And I wonder if they were praying that some kind fisherman on the Mediterranean Sea might come by and discover this basket and take their child in and raise him as their own. What were they hoping and praying for in putting Moses in this little basket in the Nile? Whatever they were hoping for, about the worst thing that could happen is that the baby would float right into Pharaoh's household himself. And so Miriam looks over and she sees nobody else but Pharaoh's own daughter with all of her attendants coming down to the river. And can you imagine the lump she got in her throat? Of all the possibilities, what could be worse than the Pharaoh himself, his own daughter coming down to the Nile and discovering what they had done with this baby? One of the first clues that we get to the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter is that she sent one of her female slaves to open the basket. Who were the slaves? They were the Hebrews. So I wonder if she didn't send a young Hebrew girl to bring this basket to her. If she had sent one of her highly trained Egyptian bodyguards, a big burly male servant, I think this story may have gone entirely differently. But the text points out that it was a female slave brought the basket to Pharaoh's daughter. And you can picture the scene from Miriam's point of view. She comes, she opens the basket, she sees the baby Moses, hears him crying, and that was the moment of truth. The text says she realized this is one of those Hebrew babies. But instead of taking him right into law enforcement, that law might be executed, said she felt sorry for him. And then Miriam acted quickly and invited this opportunity for Moses' mother to care for the child. And Pharaoh's daughter's compassion began to pour out. And then she eventually took him in. But before that, she wound up paying Moses' mother to care for the child that should have been executed. Now, how's that for an opening section of a resume? So, born under a death sentence, Moses escapes certain annihilation. He was like a mini Noah in his own personal ark. He won the heart of the enemy's daughter and then even found a way that his mother could have a job caring for the child that should have been executed. And all of this by the time he was only three months old. He is the most interesting man in the world. He's the boss baby. I mean, this is a resume like none other. Who has done this by the time they were three months old? And then later he was adopted into the king's household, and his new mom, the Pharaoh's daughter, evidently wanted everyone who met him to know the story. Look in verse 10. It says, When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, the way 
Old Testament stories work is that they are written with a purpose. They are written to instruct, to actually teach us in the way that these stories are constructed. And so when we read stories in the Bible, things like the main characters and the speeches that the main characters give, and especially when someone is given a name, are all clues to what the writer wants to call our attention to in the story. And so what just happened in verse 10 is one of two places in this story where we have a main character providing a direct quotation, and it's the naming of a child. All are signals that this is what we're we're to be paying attention to. This is something that we should notice in this text as a main point that we should take in and think about and ponder and notice as a main point. And it's that she looked on this child. She saw him crying. She felt compassion for him, and then named him Moses, meaning I drew him out of the water. The Acts 7 retelling says this, Moses was then educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. This rescuing of Moses is the opening section of his resume, and it's the beginning of his preparation for the big job that God had that needed to be done. Moses was rescued by an Egyptian from the Egyptians. But the story doesn't stop there. And I know that some of you have really impressive resumes, but I defy you to top Moses. I defy you to come up with a better resume than what we find in Moses. And so it doesn't stop. It continues in verse 11. It says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? So these verses contain more good stuff for Moses' resume. Now that he has grown, despite his privilege of being in the Pharaoh's court, he went out and he maintained solidarity with his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites. The text says he went out among them. And the way that that phrase is constructed is more than just sort of taking a stroll along the palace grounds and happening to see some Israelites being oppressed. No, this is a more intentional going out. It's as if Moses came to a point in his life where he was stepping out to do what he felt was the job God had been preparing him to do. So he went out among the Israelites, and it said he saw them at their hard labor, which is not just a word that means glanced and noticed. It means he observed, and he felt their pain in that moment. Despite his privilege, he maintained solidarity with his people. You could put that on the resume. And then he also acted quickly and decisively to relieve the oppression of his people. It says when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he intervened and he beat that Egyptian, so much so that he killed him. As an aside, the the language there for striking the Egyptian suggests that he didn't intentionally 
murder the Egyptian, but that his, his aggression was so fierce that he wound up killing the Egyptian and then he hid him in the sand. But whatever his intentions, he acted quickly and decisively to relieve the oppression of his people. And then, not only that, when he saw two of his own people fighting, he began to step in as an arbitrator. So a more grown-up Moses maintains solidarity with his people. He acts quickly and decisively to relieve their oppression. And then he steps in as an arbitrator to make peace among his people. All good stuff on the growing resume of Moses. But then something goes terribly wrong. And we see it in verse 14. In verse 14 it says, The man, this is the Hebrew who was fighting with his brother, said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So here was Moses. He was on a roll. He was the most privileged and powerful Israelite since Joseph. If you don't know the story of Joseph, go home and Google Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and see of his resume and privilege. This was the next Joseph. But then he was rejected by his own people. Acts 7, 23-25 retells the story this way. It says, When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. And then verse 27 adds that one of the Israelites actually pushed Moses aside. Moses, a member of Pharaoh's own court, pushed aside by a slave, someone with no privilege, no rights whatsoever. Moses was rejected by his own people. And in that same act, he wasn't only rejected by the Israelites. He was rejected by the Egyptians as well. It goes on in verse 15. It says, When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Nobody's got a perfect resume. At least not spiritually. Sometimes even the best resume gets blown up by one very public failure. And suddenly, we have this sense that we're unemployable. In one awful day, Moses lost everything. He went from sitting at the king's table to sitting by a well in the desert. How did this happen? Where would he go from here? Verse 16 continues the story. It says, Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their, water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up, came to their rescue, and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? 
invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. I mentioned earlier that main points in Bible stories are highlighted when main characters speak directly and when they're naming someone. And this is the second time in this account where this this sort of trifecta happens. Here we have Moses, the clear protagonist in this story, making a quote of the naming of his son. And he named his son Gershom to signify that he had become a foreigner in a foreign land. All his life, Moses had known he was no ordinary man. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was an Egyptian of the Egyptians. Honor, privilege, education. He was Moses, the one who was drawn out of the water. And now he was released from his identity, both as an Israelite and as an Egyptian. And I wonder if he felt that God had released him from his plans as well. That maybe God had been building a resume for a calling on his life, but now, finding himself in the desert, moving from the king's court to a shepherd in the wilderness, I wonder if he felt like it had all been lost. He had been released from his identity, and God maybe had moved on to someone else who was more suited for the job that he had. And if the story stopped there, that might be it. But one of the other clues to the meaning of an Old Testament or a a biblical story is not just what's contained within the story, but what comes next. And in the few verses that close out Exodus chapter 2, we sort of zoom out and we get the bigger picture that shows us what is the purpose of seeing Moses' life. Look in verses 23 through 25. It says, during that long period, and the long period refers to another 40 years in Moses' life, the 40 years that he was wandering in the wilderness, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. These verses show why the story of Moses is here, why we have seen these episodes in Moses' life that make up his resume for the calling God had for him. Moses was rescued by an Egyptian from the Egyptians. Moses was rejected by his own people and by the Egyptians. Moses felt like he was released from his identity. But we're going to see from God's perspective that in all of these phases of Moses' life, God was preparing him for his work as a deliverer. And he did it in remarkable ways. The death of Pharaoh meant Moses could return. And then the cry of the Israelites moved God to compassion. God had prepared a deliverer who would see Israel the same way God did. And so as we look back on Moses' story, seeing God's heart 
God's compassion, we begin to put the pieces together of what God had been doing to prepare him. Incidentally, Exodus 3, going forward, is the call of Moses. It's God meeting him at a burning bush and raising him up to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. That's where the story is going. It's God acting in his heart, but he had to prepare his leader to do this. And so looking back, God educated Moses in his ways of deliverance. And he did it, ironically, through his enemy. God educated Moses in his ways of deliverance through Pharaoh's daughter. And did you see the parallel? Early in the account, when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the basket, what does the text say? It said she saw him, heard his cry, and felt compassion for him. It's exactly what happens at the end of the chapter when God looks down. He sees his people, the Israelites, He hears their cry, and he has compassion for them. Moses would have had no way of knowing at the time, but even as a child, he was experiencing the kind of heart and compassion and deliverance that God would use, that God would display to deliver his people out of Egypt. Moses was getting an education in the ways of God. And not only was the compassion of God shown in Moses' rescue by Pharaoh's daughter, the way she delivered Moses is the way God would deliver his people. You remember that statement? She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And eventually, God would do the same for Israel. How did he draw them out of Egypt and their slavery? He drew them through the waters of the Red Sea. Moses was educated in the ways of God's deliverance. And in rescuing Moses, Pharaoh's own daughter demonstrated God's way, his compassion, his deliverance. And isn't that ironic that God didn't use one of his own people? He didn't use a Levitical priest. He used the daughter of the enemy. Now, I hope that you're drawing connections from this story to your story. I know I am. I get awfully impatient and want to step out and do things my way. Sometimes I lose faith that I'm even still on God's radar. Maybe he's moved on to someone else to do the work that he has called. And I wonder if even right now you're thinking back at ways that God has taught you that you would have never anticipated that you have learned his ways through means that you would never have expected. What has God taught you in building your resume? Even Moses' rejection was educational. Ultimately, he was rejected for acting in his own way, showing that he was not yet ready to be the rescuer, to be the deliverer, because he wasn't ready to do it God's way. And even in Moses' rejection, we see an interesting counterpoint between Moses' ways and God's ways. Moses killed as an effort to deliver. God rescues and preserves life. Moses hid his action when he hid the Egyptian in the sand. God draws out of the water. So there's this counterpoint between our ways, our instincts in wanting to step out and do important jobs, and God's ways that he is 
teaching us. Clearly, at 40 years old, Moses wasn't ready for the job God had for him. Education wasn't enough. He also needed experience for the job God had for him. And so God led him into this wilderness of Midian. And looking back, what must have felt like he was being released or let go from God's path was actually a rebirth. Moses was reborn into a foreigner to be put in a position to be Israel's deliverer. And so when he lost his identity as an Israelite, as an Egyptian, he became a new man. His self-understanding was changed. You might say his pride was crushed and he was humbled to be ready to do what God had for him. And all it took was 40 more years before God had a tool that he could use. In terms of practical experience, what might have happened in those 40 years? Well, it was likely necessary preparation for the work of guiding the Israelites out into the wilderness because the Midianites, the people of Midian, they were nomad wanderers. They wandered from place to place in the desert. So for 40 years, Moses lived as a shepherd out in the very same wilderness that he would be called to lead the Israelites into. You think he learned about some landmarks, some places to find water, some places of shelter, some places to avoid? You could imagine all of the practical necessity that those 40 years served Moses in preparing him by experience to be the deliverer that God had called him to be. Lessons that he could never have learned as an Israelite, as an Egyptian, that only a foreigner would know this practical knowledge. More importantly, in terms of spiritual experience, Moses learned obedience like Jesus. Hebrews 5 tells us that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. And with cries and tears, he called out to the one who could save him from death. Even though he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once Jesus was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In a way, Jesus' 33 years on earth were a wandering where Jesus himself got an education and an experience that prepared him for the ultimate task of deliverance that God had for him. And what God did for Jesus, God did for Moses. He educated him. He gave him the experience that he would need for the big job that God had for him. And you know what else is interesting? As history looks back on Moses the story reads very differently than the one that Moses tells. Hebrews 11 looks back and says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Isn't that interesting? The fear that Moses experienced and recounted in this story was eclipsed by faith. His story was recast 
through the grace of God in his life. And it was as if God was building this resume to do the work that God called him to do. Who among us doesn't need that retelling? Who among us doesn't stand in need of God's grace to reshape and redeem our stories? Whether we've been rescued, whether we've been rejected, whether we've been released. Through the lens of faith, the lens of God's grace, our story can be told differently. Because God looks at each one of us who has faith in him, who repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. He looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ, his only son. So Moses wrote this account, most likely actually in the wilderness, after having led the Israelites out. They were wandering for 40 years because of their disobedience and failure to, by faith, step into the land God had called them. And so he wrote this account, among other reasons, to encourage the Israelites that what they were experiencing had all happened before. Moses had lived it, and so he could lead them through it. And so it was a call for the older Israelites to repent of their sins of disbelief. It was a call to the younger Israelites there in the wilderness to have hope and to believe and to persevere. And I believe this story is here not only to encourage the Israelites, but to encourage every one of us who has a measure of faith to believe in God. It's here to call us forward so that we might have peace and rest in the story of our lives, believing that God is building our resume for whatever it is that he has for us. And you can be sure that if you do place your faith in God through Jesus Christ, God has a job for you. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared beforehand. So there is a job God is preparing you and me for. So have hope. Have confidence, have anticipation that God is at work actively preparing you, even if you feel like you're wandering. Because in a way, we were made for this. The wandering comes before the task that God gives to us. D.L. Moody summed up Moses' resume by saying, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. And then he spent 40 years learning that he was nobody. And then he spent 40 years seeing what God could do through a nobody. That was Moses' resume. That was Moses' story. Michael Card, the singer and songwriter, wrote a, story, wrote a song called In the Wilderness. It goes like this. It says, In the wilderness, in the wilderness... He calls his sons and daughters to the wilderness. But he gives grace sufficient to survive any test. And that's the painful purpose of the wilderness. It says, in the wilderness we're wondering for a way to understand. In the wilderness there's not a way for the ways become a man. And the man's become the exodus, the way to holy ground. And wandering in the wilderness is the best way to be found. Let's pray.
Thank you, Lord, for making a way in the wilderness for each of us through the man, Jesus Christ. Thank you that what you have done for your son, you have done for Moses, and you can do for each one of us. So encourage us today. Give us faith. Give us endurance. Give us hope. Give us confidence and anticipation for what you are doing wherever we find ourselves in our story. And use each person here today to do the unique work that you have called him or her to. And give us faith and joy as we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.